What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Good morning, everyone. How about we pray? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for another day. Uh, We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We thank you for your son who's made a way for us uh, to be in right relationship with you. Lord, as we look at your word, um, may we be convicted. Uh, May we use it as a test to apply to our lives. May we walk out um, being changed. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a question for you guys. What would you say, uh, so imagine a politician, what would you say of this politician who raves on and on and on about the high standards of, uh, and the top-notch education of the local public schools that he's in, but you find that he enrolls his children in a private college hours away? Or consider a McDonald's executive who claims his company offers the best family food but he's always found him and his family as seen eating at KFC, or Porto, everywhere else except McDonald's. Now, pushing this a little bit further, imagine a husband who insists that he cherishes his wife, but he maintains a secret, long-standing affair with another woman. Now, in all of these examples, there's a difference between what is claimed and what is done. The actions don't seem to match the words. It's the behavior of these people that show what they really think more than what it is that they say. Our claims aren't always an accurate reflection of what we really think and believe, but our deeds are. We don't always live what we say we believe, but we do always believe what we live out. And this is no less true for Christians And this is James's concern in our passage this morning. James begins, and I love this, he's such a practical guy. He gives us his thesis statement in the first verse of our passage. Immediately, and in one sentence, he gives us his main idea. Verse 14. 
He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Now, the clue to understanding our passage this morning, and I must say is so often ignored, that in verse 14, James, notice, doesn't say if someone has faith, but he says if someone claims to have faith. This should be allowed to control our interpretation of this passage. The burden of this section is not, I repeat, is not as is so often used and supposed that we are saved through faith plus works. The burden is, what he's pushing is that we are saved through authentic faith as opposed to counterfeit faith. James is saying, faith that doesn't find expression in deeds is not real. He's saying a person who only claims, who only professes that he's got faith, but doesn't express that faith with deeds, he's saying that's worthless. He wants to point out that a Christianity of mere words doesn't necessarily lead to salvation. Now we must clarify, and men did the same thing, deeds, what do they mean? James means, or says that deeds means righteous action, righteous behavior, behavior which is obedient to God's scripture and which displays godly nature, which displays the transformation that has already occurred in us by the Holy Spirit. Friends, how we live proves who we are and what it is we believe. Now, James has already described salvation as a good and perfect gift from God the Father of the heavenly lights who chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of everything he created. So faith, James has already said, is supernaturally bestowed by God and it is not independently conceived in our minds and our wills. So James here cannot be teaching that salvation is earned by works. The question, and I'll repeat it again, in our passage is not whether we are saved through faith. Sorry, it's not whether we're saved through faith alone or through faith plus works. That's not the question. That's not even the discussion here. The question is whether dead faith saves or living faith. So how do we tell if we possess this living, authentic faith? What are the marks of it? How do we know we are truly believers of our Lord Jesus? Now, for anyone here who professes to be a Christian, me included, this is, very, this is a very important question we can ask. And it is the most crucial to answer accurately. Thankfully, James answers the question. He answers it in a practical guy, in a negative way, and then in a positive way. And these are our two points. First, he shows us what is lacking in dead, counterfeit faith. That's our first, first point. Then he shows us what the signs of living, authentic faith are. And for each of these two points, James will give us two worked examples. So we're going to go through four examples. So it brings us to our first point, dead, counterfeit faith. And the first example of dead, counterfeit faith, James imagines a fellow Christian, someone from within the community of believers who's without clothes and daily food. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it isn't accompanied by action, is dead. Here is a situation of a claimed faith without practical love. Now, James is elaborating on the problem that he had already mentioned in chapter 1, the difference between hearers of the word and hearers and doers of the word. He's teaching us that a claimed faith without tangible love for fellow believers is useless. Now, remember, his concern is for a merely claimed faith. We saw that in verse 14. He's concerned about people who claim to be Christians but who are not He's concerned about people who, are, who have made a decision for Christ, if I can use that language, or who have joined a church or answered some questions of a church membership or declared themselves to be Christians, but whose lives do not show the marks of real faith. That's his concern. He looks at the life and he says, I see no consistent visible evidence of an outflow of the life of faith in this person. And as far as James is concerned, that person is not a Christian. James bluntly questions the person's salvation. And he gives us a concrete example. It's concrete by showing tangible love and care and concern for our Christian brother or sister in distress. He says, let's say your brother or your sister comes along and they're in distress, they're in need. They're in need of food, they're in need of clothing, and you say, I'll pray for you, Bob. And you do nothing to help them. He says, you know what that is? That's useless. It's got to be lived out. It must be acted. It must be embodied. It must not be merely talked about or asserted or professed. It must be lived. Now, I've got to stress this again. In a talk like this, I've got to say it. Our deeds, our works, and our acts of mercy are not, I repeat, are not the means of salvation. But they are the necessary evidence of salvation. This point is so important because we must remember, guilt is not the motivation for caring for the poor. Guilt is not the motivation for obedience. We don't provide for the poor because we must or because we're guilty. No, the gospel motivates us to care for the poor. We provide for the poor and we're obedient because we are compelled by the mercy of God that has radically transformed our hearts and his mercy overflows from our lives. And if that wasn't enough, James gives us another example of dead faith. In verses 18 and 19, he deals with the situation of right thinking without practical love. Practical love, James says, is the invariable fruit of real faith. And he goes on to say that an orthodox faith, a correct belief system that isn't accompanied by works, is the equivalent of the faith of demons. Verses 18 to 19. He says, but someone will say, you've got faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I don't know if you noticed it, but James is handling an imaginary objector in these verses. In verse 18, James is imagining an objector who's saying, James, I've got faith. I really do. I really do believe, James. I believe the truth. I believe the claims. Christ is Lord. And James, in response, says, in effect, show me. Don't tell me. 
Show me that you believe that Christ is Lord. And then he drives the point home even more sharply. He caps his response to the objector by comparing his faith to the faith of demons. He teaches in verse 19 that you can know some true things. He says you can believe some truth, true things. And you can even know and believe some important and true things. And you can even know and believe some important and true things about God, the Bible, salvation, Christ. And he's saying you can still not be a Christian. He says the demons believe a lot of things we believe. They believe in the existence of God. The demons often acknowledge the existence and authority of Christ. We see that in the Gospels. The demons acknowledge that Jesus is divine. They believe in the presence of heaven and hell. They know that Christ is the eternal judge and they know that Christ alone is able to save. But their nature is not changed by what they know and profess. Their fearful affirmation of orthodox teaching is not the same as saving authentic faith. So James is asking his readers, asking us to consider... If the demons believe and tremble and are not saved, what does that say about those who profess to believe and don't even tremble? Friends, there's a real difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. There's a difference between assenting to truths and embracing truths. We do what we believe. We act on what we believe. Jesus said that. We all know that. Our actions are reflections, are reflections of our hearts. And so if our lives don't demonstrate that faith that we claim, then the faith isn't there. There's no other way to demonstrate it. Faith is seen in deeds. True faith is seen in action. Authentic saving faith has always been verified by fruit and a false Dead faith is indicated by the absence of righteous actions. I'm sorry this is so dark, but this is how it is. Jesus gives us an illustration. You all know it. There was a famous occasion when Jesus was teaching a crowd jam-packed in a small home. There wasn't even room outside. The place was overflowing. And so when a group of men turned up, desperate to get to Jesus... The only option was to climb on top of the flat roof and start burrowing in to the room below. The reason for this desperate entry is clear. We all know it. They wanted to bring a paralyzed person in the floor, on the floor in front of Jesus. Once they had lowered the man to the floor in front of Jesus, Mark tells us something that we often miss. It is greatly significant. Listen to what he says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus see? Their faith. Their faith was a physically visible thing. All true faith is. It's not an invisible way of thinking of God. It's something seen in how people behave. True faith can be seen. Counterfeit faith is invisible. I've been thinking about this in my own life. Our choices, our priorities, our actions, our relationships, how I deal with my people from work. In my case, they're all Christians, but 
how we deal with people from work or college or, or neighbours, and especially our relationships in the Christian community. How we approach all of these things will show whether or not we have authentic faith. This was hard to write this next little bit, but I'm going to say it. Affirmation of Christian truth, however central and however doctrine, however orthodox that truth may be, is not enough. It means nothing. To any who are tempted to reduce Christianity to saying the right things, James points to an uncomfortable yet undeniable truth, and he says that demons believe that. And so we bring, he brings us to our transitional verse, I call it, verse 20, where James asks, well, do you, read, do you want evidence that a profession of faith that has no works accompanied with it is useless? Have a look at verse 20. He says, you foolish person. He's not kind to him at all. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He's already shown that counterfeit faith, and he's provided two examples, the uh, armchair humanitarian and the doctrinally orthodox demon. Both illustrate how claims that aren't corroborated by deeds are worthless. And now, from here on, he turns to the nature of authentic faith. And once again, he provides two examples, like I said earlier both from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. Point two, living faith. And we're going to look at Abraham from verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James takes us back to some key events in Abraham's life and shows us how they are connected. You're going to have to follow me. Genesis 22. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, who was only a boy. And when we read that, humanly speaking, it makes no sense. Earlier in Genesis 12, God had first called Abraham and had given him a set of promises. One of them was that he would be a father of a great nation. Everything hinged on having a line of descendants. But at that stage, Abraham was old, his wife was barren, and so having just one child, let alone a dynasty, was going to be a challenge. So... God, in Genesis 15, restated the promise, adding that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. What did Abraham do? He believed God. And James here reminds us that this was credited to him as righteousness. He was right with God. And in due course, Isaac was born. Yet, in Genesis 22, we see Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God. He offered his son Isaac on the altar. In the end, he didn't need to. It proves he really did trust God. God provided an animal as a substitute. The point is, Abraham was willing to obey. And this is why it is significant. It does prove that he really did trust God. You're going to have to follow me. I'm going to repeat myself in different ways here. The obedience of Abraham seen in Genesis 22 demonstrated 
the genuineness of his faith seen in Genesis 15. His faith and his actions were working together. His actions kind of completed his faith. His faith was seen in obedience. The kind of faith that had been credited to Abraham as righteousness in Genesis 15, years before, produced the act of obedience in Genesis 22. The kind of faith only a man would perform. Sorry, the kind of act only a man would perform. The kind of act that causes the doer to be considered righteous. And it leads James to conclude verse 24 by saying, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Now on the surface, James seems to be flatly contradicting the Apostle Paul. If you didn't know that, I brought it to your attention. And because of that apparent contradiction, we're going to take a closer look at that because I do need to address this. Our Jehovah's Witness neighbours, our Catholic friends and some Mormons will use this, so it's probably good to pay attention here at least. Let's have a look at what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 28, and the next five verses after that. Paul says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul is emphatic. Paul says we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James says that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It seems the New Testament writers are opposed or at odds with one another, drawing out swords facing each other. And if that wasn't problematic enough, the issue over which they seem to pose couldn't be more important it's not like they were disagreeing over the color of Moses' hair. They weren't even disagreeing over what Jesus' great aunt was called. This couldn't be more serious. Friends, if you read Romans chapter 3 and 4 in their entirety, you'll notice that Paul says there is no one righteous, not even one. The law can't justify you. It justifies nobody before God. Nobody. He says Christ is our propitiation and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him righteousness and he goes on to say this is Paul God credits to us righteousness apart from the works of law you saw it on the screen but in your own time if you have a read Paul asks this question in Romans 4 when was Abraham justified by faith when was it before circumcision or after? And what's the answer? Before. Now to add to that, was his faith and justification before the law or after the law? Before. So, Abraham was justified through faith before circumcision, before Isaac on the altar, and before the law given by Moses. That's Paul's whole argument. His entire summary of our legal standing, that justification, 
is ultimately Abraham. It's Abraham, his faith before circumcision, before Isaac, and before the law. I'm going to drum this. But James in our passage says, Abraham, was he not justified by works? And you go, wait, James and Paul are fighting. But then you recognize when you read them side by side, they aren't even in the same discussion. Here's why. In Romans 4, listen to the timeline again. Paul argues about our justification this way. Abraham, when was he justified? Through faith, before circumcision, before Isaac on the altar, before the law. That's when he was justified. Through faith, apart from the works of the law. When did it take place, Paul says? Through faith, before circumcision, before Isaac, before the law. You've got to capture that. Paul's discussion in Romans is about how a person is justified before God. That is, he's saying, is it law or is it works? Sorry, is it law and works or is it faith? The how, the legal standing between God and man. James's discussion is about what kind of faith saves. James is talking about kinds of faith. And he says, can a faith that is a mere profession but not a real possession save? And you all know this. What's the answer? Of course not. He says, profession is one thing, but if there is not something following it, you don't know it's real. So the question in James is not whether we are saved through faith alone. I've said it before. And it's not whether we're saved through faith plus works, not the discussion. It's the question of whether dead faith saves or living faith. I'm going to push this a little bit more. In Paul, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. When? Before circumcision, before Isaac on the altar, before the law. Does anyone know how many years before Isaac? About 20 years, they say. In James's discussion, he says about Abraham, wasn't he justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? Now, I don't know if you notice, they're not even at the same point of Abraham's life. Did you notice that? They are in two different time periods in Abraham's life. One is talking about when he was vindicating, uh, that is James, which I'm going to talk about. James is talking about Abraham's faith vindicating him. Now, here's something I don't like doing, but the word justified sometimes is translated as considered righteous. And it can be used in four different ways at least. It can be used to describe a legal standing, a declaration of righteousness before man, uh, before God, that is, through faith. And that's how Paul uses that language. It can also be used to describe a kind of like a vindication. This is how James is using it in our passage this morning. I'll give you an example. Jesus, when he was accused of being a drunkard, if you remember... When that happened to him, what did Jesus say? He said, wisdom is justified by her children. Now, was Jesus teaching that wisdom is legally declared right by God, by her children? No. When he said wisdom is justified by her children, he says, you know what this means? He says, if you want to know what godly wisdom is like, look at what it produces. It will vindicate what you're saying. It will vindicate what you're doing. And so James is using it in the exact same way. He says this, you want to know that how Abraham's faith is authentic? How it's saving? How it's living faith? He was willing to offer up Isaac on the altar. That's how you know his faith was living and not dead. 
Friends, we are saved through faith alone. I'm never going to deny that. That's the instrument that joins us to Jesus. But saving faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. If it is truly saving faith, it will produce works because it's divine. It is given by God and it's real. And just in case, if the readers of James say, well, Abraham is different, you know, he gives us another example. He says, you want more proof? Look at Rahab, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? This is the sort of person that I would, in my life earlier, kind of connect with. That's why he gives us this. Rahab could hardly be more different from Abraham. Abe was a Jewish man. Rahab was a Gentile woman. Abe was rich. She was poor. He was a patriarch. She was a prostitute. Yet they both illustrate the same point. True faith is shown by actions. And this choice of example shows us that it comes in all shapes and sizes. Now we come across Rahab in the book of Joshua, early in the book of Joshua in fact. The people of God, they're about to enter the promised land and will need to take the city of Jericho. Spies are dispatched to case the entire joint before battle is joined. During their reconnaissance mission, they come across Rahab. Word's gotten out that Jewish spies are in the city and the Jericho police are knocking at the door. Yet Rahab covers for them, sending the police off in the wrong direction and slipping the spies out. Her actions align her with the mission of the Israelites. They put her entirely at cross purposes with her own people. That's risky. Yet she does it because she has faith in God. Along with many others, Rahab has heard of God. And she heard what he's done in fulfilling his promises to his people. She knows him to be the Lord of all. And because of that, she believes. She acts. She doesn't just offer a parting, I hope it goes well for you guys. And then finally, James caps off the entire argument. He uses an illustration of a body. Verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I discovered a body at the age of six walking my dog around the block. I saw my neighbor on the floor in his, in his, on the grass. He was picking fruit. There's no mistaking a dead body. It's motionless. I touched it. I didn't know. I thought he wasn't okay. It's cold. The fingernails are already changing color. It is the image of lifelessness that James uses to hammer home his point. He says professions of faith, claims to be trusting in Christ and believing in God. They can look impressive. They can even move us. But if they're not accompanied by deeds, they are no more vibrant than a dead body awaiting the grave. Now, in another context, we, context, we might have expected this verse to be the other way around. I don't know if you did, but I did. He could have phrased it, without faith, deeds are dead. And that's true. But that's not the point James needs to make to his readers and for us to understand. He's saying, unless it's lived out, faith is no more than a useful Breathless, sorry, faith is no more useful than a breathless corpse. And no amount of careful presentation can change that. Real faith is lived out. True faith is visible. It does things. 
We do not always live what we say we believe or even think we believe, but we do always believe what we live out. So the question is, are we demonstrating deeds that come from true faith? Or are we in danger of hiding behind claims of faith that have no evidence from our lifestyle? James's concern here is that we look at ourselves, brothers and sisters, not at the nominalism we might happen to see around us. His words are, and they were for me this week, and I, I pray that they stay that way for me, as ever, very, very searching. We can be so quick to affirm our faith, to declare it in creeds, in songs, prayers, conversations, that we never stop to examine whether our profession of faith is truly credible. Now, immediately I hear myself thinking, of course I'm a Christian. I've always said I am. But I need to stop and examine what's going on in my life. Businesses do it. We've got to do it. I need to look at my own heart. I am in as much danger, I repeat that, I'm in as much danger as anyone else of possessing counterfeit faith, and I am a fool if I think otherwise. Real faith is not merely sentimental, wishing people well when doing nothing. And it is not merely a creedal, something you say to be true, but makes no difference to our lives. Such things may be something, but they're not Christianity, James tells us, and they don't save. Here are some questions we can ask ourselves as we examine our faith. Now, these aren't exhaustive. This is what I asked of myself, and I try not to limit it because God could be convicting you in ways that I don't know. Do I love and live the word of God? Do I act in light of the fear of God? Does my mercy to others reflect the grace of God to me? Do my relationships reflect the love of God to me? Does my life reflect the desires of God? Have I noticed a change in my life? Can others tell that I'm a follower of Jesus or do I blend in like the world? Do I have a desire to share Christ with others or am I ashamed of you? Do, enjoy, do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people or I can't wait to get away from them? Friends, these are but a handful of questions. To be sure, not every Christian has the same degree of faith. Those who've had more time to grow should be stronger in the faith. But for the most part, this spiritual inventory can assist us and assist a person in determining his or her true standing before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this hard word, this truth. If it wasn't necessary, it wouldn't be there. But it is there, which means it's necessary. Lord, I know that many of my brothers and sisters here are doers of the word. Lord, may our prayer be similar to that of the psalmist who says in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.